0: What is going on, ladies and gentlemen? Robert Sykes, KetoSavage.com, and I have a special guest, Jillian Zolos, on the line today, and we're going to talk about a little bit of everything. We're going to talk about uh, hormonal pathways. We're going to talk about therapeutic ketosis versus nutritional ketosis. Well, we're going to cover all kinds of bases here. So without further ado, how are you, Jillian?
1: I am very well, Rob. How are you?
0: I have never been better, never been better. Uh, so tell everybody, who, who is Jillian Zolos?
1: I should have guessed that you would ask me that question. It's <laughs>
0: yeah. been a typical intro for me lately.
1: <laughs> I am I'm a big keto fan. Let me start there. Um, I came to keto uh, about three years ago when I started having seizures and I was diagnosed with epilepsy and um, keto revolutionized my life. It uh, stopped all my seizures. I am now completely seizure free, almost three years now. And um, along with the seizure freedom, I also had a bunch of other amazing health transformations that came with this way of eating, including no longer having any pain from fibromyalgia, and uh, losing a great deal of weight that i had had a really tough time losing for about 20 years of my life. So keto really made a huge difference in my health on multiple levels.
0: So with regard to like the epilepsy, because like a lot of people, they, they look at the, you know, the history of the ketogenic diet and they find that it was used in the 1920s for le- epileptic children. What time frame was that going down with you?
1: Uh, you mean the, the time frame for my keto?
0: Yeah. Like were you, were you having the the seizures younger or or kind of? Yes, I did.
1: Yeah, for sure. I started having seizures. um, Well, no one knows for sure, but somewhere probably around eight or nine, my mom started to notice that I was having absent seizures. And those are sort of typically when someone locks on to a focal point and you can't distract them from it. But often people don't even recognize that as a seizure pattern. But my mom was uh, actually trained as a a nurse. And so she had spent a lot of time in pediatrics and recognized it and took me to the doctor and said, hey, I think my daughter might be having seizures. So it took a bunch of years before anyone really took her seriously. And around the age of 12, I was diagnosed um, with spells. They didn't even call it seizures back then because the head of neurology at the children's hospital where I was seen said if I was not losing control of my bowels or my bladder, then it wasn't epilepsy. And that, of course, is absolutely not a criteria for epilepsy. But that is that's what my mom was told at the time. And uh, so I sort of went, you know, for a few years there where people just sent me to psychologists and social workers to try and see what was wrong with me emotionally, um, why I was having these spells. But when I was 14, I was really lucky. We moved neighborhoods and moved in next to um, a really eminent neurologist. And my mom cornered him at a dinner party at Christmas and said, look, can you please see my daughter? And he agreed. And within a week, I was in having EEGs and CTs and MRIs. And within the month, he had diagnosed me with left temporal lobe epilepsy. He said it was clear I had a lesion in my brain. And he put me on medication. And uh, the medication worked. I had one grand mal seizure and then I did not have another seizure after that. But that was all through the time that I was in high school. And it really impacted my memory. It impacted my, my gut health. It, it was really nasty medication. And uh, as a result, when I was 18, I decided to stop taking it. And I was probably not smart to just do that on my own, but I was 18. So 18-year-olds 18 do dumb things sometimes. Yeah. And uh, um, after that, I didn't have another seizure. I, I maintained the seizure freedom for decades until I hit my 40s. And, of course, perimenopause was upon me. And um, I was driving home one day from the accountant's office, and I had a massive aura, and I knew exactly what that meant. And within a week, I was having multiple seizures a day. And they were putting me on new medication that was absolutely horrific. I cannot even begin to tell you how terrible an experience that was. Uh, It compounded the stress of the seizures tenfold to the point where I said to my husband, look, if the seizures kill me, then they're going to have to kill me. But I have to stop the medication because that is going to destroy our marriage and destroy our family faster than anything else will. So. At that point, my amazing uh, husband went to the internet, and he found a group um, that was supporting families, um, you know, families who had members who were having seizures, and that's where he learned about keto, and he came to me and said, honey, what do you think about this? And I've been working in health, Rob, for 15 years, and I had never heard this term before, and he brought it to me, I did the research, I looked into it, I looked up some some journal articles. I did a PubMed search. And 24 hours later, I said, let's do it. And he started cooking for me. And two weeks later, I was completely seizure-free, literally. The day I was in ketosis, like actual therapeutic levels of ketosis,
0: I stopped having seizures. Without any medication?
1: With no meds. Now, I was still on meds at that time because they would not let me titrate off them uh, like I couldn't just stop them overnight because the, the, unfortunately one of the side effects of doing that is really, really, really serious seizures. So I had to bring my meds down slowly, but I had cut back 75% of my dose within the first two weeks. And then they made me, um, continue cutting back very, very slowly over the next six months. And, uh, at the end of six months I was completely med free and I've now been med free and seizure free for three years.
0: That's freaking awesome. What, what, like, I don't know much about seizures. Like, I I don't know, I probably should know more than I do, but I haven't had any, so I haven't, like, (laughs) looked into them personally. But can you, like, tell the audience, you know, what, what, just kind of go in the science panel. Like, what causes the seizure? Why does ketosis work to prevent seizures? Like, what happens during a seizure? Because it's got to be kind of, especially, like, as a younger kid, especially when you don't really know what's going on, Mm -hmm. going under a seizure. I mean, I mean, people will just kind of start, you know, not knowing how to respond to you, I would think.
1: Absolutely. And I love you for asking that question, Rob, because the reality is one in a hundred people have epilepsy. That's a lot. One in a hundred people. So that means that at some point in your life, you are probably going to witness someone have a seizure. But one of the things um, that's really unfortunate is a lot of people out there when they hear the term seizure, they sort of picture the way that it is typically depicted in, you know television, which of course is the most dramatic grandma seizure you can possibly imagine, you know and and the reality is for a lot of people, they do not experience seizures that way. So yes, you can have drop seizures where you literally just drop and you're you're out for a period of time non-responsive. You have no understanding or memory of what actually happened during the seizure. Um, and that can be very scary to witness, and certainly uh, it's a real bummer to experience as you know as an individual. Um other people can have seizures where they seem to be alert. They're actually still walking, their eyes are open. They may be making repetitive mo- movements. Those people often find themselves waking up in hospital with handcuffs on because someone has called the police saying this person is having a drug reaction or, you know, is under the influence of alcohol, or is having a mental breakdown. And, and in fact, what's happening is they're having a seizure. So I would encourage everyone who's listening today, just to go to YouTube and Google different kinds of seizures and spend five minutes looking at a bunch of different seizures. And just familiarize yourself with what that could look like. My particular seizures are more um, partial seizures. So I tend to have uh, an episode where I will Lock on my focus. I I make repetitive sort of mouth motions. So it looks like I'm chewing. What I'm actually doing is swallowing a lot because I I get a lot of saliva, especially right before a seizure. And then I need to find low ground. I know that if I don't find low ground, I'm going to lose consciousness. So I tend to get onto the ground, but then I'm not responsive anymore. So you can ask me what my name is as many times as you want, but I'm not going to be able to respond to you. And in fact, Sometimes people in, in meing well will, you know, touch me or pat me or try and get my attention when I'm really just needing to focus on my seizure and I'll be out in a couple of minutes and I'll be okay. Some people's seizures last 30 seconds. Some people's seizures last five, six minutes. Typically, if a seizure lasts longer than 15 minutes, you should access an emergency, you know, service. You should call 911. But I tell people... If you're uncomfortable with a situation, it's never wrong to call EMS. If the person comes around and they say, "Yep, I do this all the time. You don't need to take me to hospital. Well, then that's okay. But if someone's uncomfortable, they can always call EMS. So, you know, in answer to the first part of your question, seizures are really diverse and epilepsy is really, really an incredibly broad spectrum term that covers an awful lot. So, you know, it's a bit like cancer, you know. We we use this word cancer, but there are hundreds of different kinds of cancer that have hundreds of different kinds of outcomes and treatment paths. And epilepsy is is very similar to that. So it's a big, broad term. It doesn't just really mean one thing. With gotcha. regards to um, to keto and and seizures, well, that's really interesting because, as you point out, we've been we've known about this for a long time, and you know, a lot of that that initial research does go back to the twenties, but they were talking about seizure control through fasting in biblical times. So this has been well known for a long time that fasting can um, stop or slow seizures. So with therapeutic ketogenic diets, and we can talk a little bit more about you know what that actually means in a minute, but um, with those kinds of diets, up to 50% of people can have a 50 to 60% reduction in their seizures with this way of eating. And that is incredible. And when you add to that, that a further 20% or so of people um, actually can have up to 75%, 80% reduction in seizures, that's even more incredible. And a very lucky 10 to 15%, myself included, can have complete resolution of all of their seizures on this diet. And there is not a medication out there that has that good an outcome. So that's pretty incredible. When you think about the meds that are being used today and some of them, you know, are are really good and some of them are definitely things that people need. I'm not I'm not bashing medication, but I'm saying that if you have a nutritional option to try that might actually work as well or complement medication It's worth trying because I'll tell you, the side effects of some of those anti-epileptic drugs are really unpleasant.
0: It does blow my mind that like in the 1920s when they were using this predominantly for, you know, children with epileptic seizures, uh, and it worked fine. Then they found the, you know, seizure-resistant drugs that they would implement. They pretty much phased out the diet except for a select few that were non-responsive to the drugs and people would prefer the drugs over nutritional means. It's just like that. I think that just sounds backwards, you know?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Sorry, my daughter just came home, so you're gonna hear my dogs now for a second. <laughs> no problem. Uh, absolutely, that's that's true. And I mean, one of the things is that the the diet that was being used in the 20s um, wasn't what we're talking about today when you talk about keto. So I think that's, really, that's a really important message, though, is that um, back in the day, People had some pretty gross things that they had to eat, and and a lot of these young children were were basically just force fed oil, and it really wasn't uh, it wasn't pleasant. But what some of the newer research is saying is that for the majority of adults, and that's what's really important here, is that. Under the age of two, a traditional ketogenic diet or an MCT oil diet seems to be what works the best for intractable epilepsy or epilepsy that is not responding to medication. For adults, what tends to work just as well and what the research is really starting to show now is that a modified Atkins approach is as effective as that traditional 90% fat or 4 to 1 ratio uh, diet is. So that means that for a huge number of people, they can actually have a diet that allows them to have salad, you know, that allows them not to have to weigh and measure every single little thing, and it will still have a profound impact on their seizure activity. And I think a lot of people kind of get confused by that. They think, you know, um, a ketogenic diet means this highly, highly restricted diet, and I must eat 80% fat, and I have to weigh and measure everything to the gram. And certainly, for some people, that is absolutely the case. But for a lot of people, it's not. And I think even uh, physicians, and certainly my own physicians, when when I approached them and said, "Look, I want to try this," they laughed at me. They said it only works for kids under two. And and my family doctor said, "Keto? What? <laughs> you know, yeah. she she never heard the the term ketogenic diet, and neither had I. Like two weeks earlier. So I get it, but." The, the cool thing is that you know people like Eric Kossoff at Johns Hopkins University and more and more um, really fabulous dietitians out there now are are really emphasizing that there's a different way to go about this and, and a modified Atkins approach can be almost if not as effective as a traditional keto diet, a ketogenic diet as long as you're over the age of two.
0: Very interesting because a lot of people um, you know myself included assume that you know, the the modified Atkins are pretty much like what is commonly termed ketogenic now, basically being, you know, 70, 75, 80% uh, calories coming from fat. You know, I would never have guessed that that would have been as effective as what was traditionally used for, you know, epileptic, uh, you know, seizures. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. And I think that's, a you know, that there's another side to that, though. There's there's another coin, and that's one of the things that I I really wanted to, to talk with you about today is that The majority of the keto that we talk about and that we see on the internet and in everybody's Instagram feeds is that kind of 75% ratio. And a lot of people will even drop the fats below that, you know, they're using that fat as a lever, especially for people who are trying to lose weight, you know, they may even drop their fats down into the 50 or 60%, especially, you know, if they're um, if they're well read up on Steven Pinney and Jeff Folek and, you know, they, they want to burn the fat from their body, not the fat from their plate, except that doesn't really uh, necessarily work so well for people who are using this therapeutically. You still need lots of fat on the plate to use this therapeutically. So I think there, there's an important line to be drawn there that if the goal is health and, and maybe athletic performance, there is definitely a track that you can get on that that is very successful for a lot of people. But if the goal is therapeutic, if you are using this to try and and help with your epilepsy or Parkinson's disease or polycystic ovarian syndrome or fibromyalgia or type 2 diabetes, or the list goes on and on and on, then you need to take it just a, one step further, in my opinion, and, and just tweak so that you are achieving the therapeutic goals that you want to have and that might mean that you can't actually have six cups of salad a day you might only be able to have two in order to stay in your therapeutic range
0: what what is what do your ratios look like for instance
1: well that's a great question and i'll tell you my ratios have changed so when i started i weighed and measured absolutely everything and absolutely everything went into my fitness pal because I really wanted to treat myself like an experiment. And I wanted to make sure that if I wasn't reaching the therapeutic goals that I was anticipating reaching, that I could look back and figure it out and I could tweak it. So I started out at 90% fat and 10% carbs and protein. So basically no carbs at all, just, you know, meat, a little bit of dairy and a lot of fat. Mm -hmm. And that worked out really, really well for me. And then once I had been seizure free for a few months, I started to up my ratio of um, carbs a little bit and add in some more vegetables and add in a third of a cup of berries a week. So I dropped my ratios down to closer to about 80% fat. And after about a year and a half, I drop them down a bit more so now I can actually have a day where I can go as high as 40 or 50 total grams of carbs the vast majority of those are coming from fibrous veggies um, and you know green leafy veggies Um, but I don't usually feel good if I do that and and I know myself well enough now to be able to say oh I don't feel great I need to fast tomorrow or I need to have like a full-on egg fast for three days so that I'm back in the ninety percent range of fat. But uh, I've I've learned that over the years, just um, you know, really feeling out my own behavior and looking at what I am looking at what I'm eating very critically, and when I don't feel good, going back over what I've eaten in the last three days to say where did I go wrong.
0: Yeah, I think that's hugely important. Just to kind of you know be in tune enough with your body to know how each manipulation manipulation you make affects the overall uh, outcome I tell you though I, I agree with you in the sense that I, I like me myself personally I recommend uh, you know a higher fat ratio I feel better with a higher fat ratio even for you know performance benefits not just from the therapeutic reasons like I uh, I mean I just feel better mentally and I perform better physically with the higher fat ratio so I think a large number of people would experience the same um, when I did a higher protein ratio which is kind of more in line with what people are trying to play around with now my performance actually suffered
1: that's really interesting and 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 i'm you know i i love the gym too not quite as much as you do i <laughs> think wrong, but you know i try i get there at least four times a week but i i try and uh, and i'm interested in my own performance so i'm you know, I'm 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 uh, I I love my deadlifting and I, I love my my squatting and and I want to see my performance get better, and I actually found that um, I don't know if you've been following the weather up in Canada, but we had one heck of a cold snap the last couple of weeks. We've been down in the minus 40s for a week, which is rare here, but that was brutal. And for me, I suffered. I have not have had a fibromyalgia flare up for three years since I started keto and I had a wicked flare up and I went to the gym and I worked out and I was in pain and I'm never in pain after the gym. And I came back and I looked at my, what I'd eaten the week before and my ratios had dipped. I had, I have to admit they had dipped and, and I probably was only getting about 70% fat in there. And so I went to town on the fat and that's all I ate for the next week trying to reduce my sort of systemic inflammation Mm -hmm. and it made a huge difference and and maybe this is a good place to bring in that hormone issue that we were talking about because i mean men and women we all have hormones but uh women in particular have a monthly cycle and for us i know that i when i track my ketones i track ketones every single day i take my 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 uh, beta hydroxybutyrate by blood stick every morning and I also take my basal body temperature. So I know exactly when I'm ovulating and right before my period's going to arrive, I know because I can see what happens with my temperature. And what's really cool is that when I ovulate, my ketones are the highest they are during the entire month and my blood sugar is the lowest it is in the entire month. And exactly the opposite happens right before my cycle starts. So my ketones bottom out and I have a very high spike in blood sugar. And I remember wondering about this and like looking at this over months and months and seeing it was a clear pattern. And I was lucky enough to be at a conference with Stephen Pinney a couple of years ago and, and we hung out for a couple of hours and I said to him, hey, what does this mean? And he said, Well, it's obviously a marker of inflammation. You know, A, it's your hormonal cycle, but B, right before you have your cycle, you have a ser- serious increase in your systemic inflammation, which makes perfect sense when you're losing the lining of your uterus every month. And I thought, wow, that really, you know, answers a lot of questions. A lot of people with epilepsy see a huge spike in seizures right before they have their cycle or at ovulation because of that hormonal factor. And knowing that and being on a ketogenic diet, I am able to plan for that and to say, okay, I know that I've got a period coming in four days. These four days are gonna be all about the fat. I am not going to deviate from my 90% ratio. I'm gonna keep it really high so I can keep my ketones in a therapeutic level and it won't dip down to a place where I might risk having a seizure.
0: What does your uh, what does your weight do during the the week preceding and the week of your cycle? Does it fluctuate much?
1: It used to fluctuate more. Uh, I used to be able to easily be you know four or five pounds heavier right before, and you know it would all come off. Since I've been on keto, I don't find I fluctuate as much. My weight has actually been pretty static for uh, I'd say nearly two years I lost 90 pounds in the first 18 months and then my weight has been um, static for well let's say 18 months because I actually have a DEXA scan done (laughs) every year because I I like data I'm a data head and uh, (laughs) like the rest of us right Um, but I was really interested to see that in my last year, I did not lose a single pound on the scale, but I gained six pounds of muscle and I lost six pounds of fat and I increased my bone density. And as a 48 year old woman, that those things don't happen easily. Yeah. <laughs> so I was really happy with that. And and this year, my goal is is pretty much to do the same. I would still like to drop 10 pounds, but I'm not focused on that anymore. That's you know I'm I'm more focused on building the strength and and maintaining my my bone density as I get older.
0: Well, I mean, shoot, I, I worked out with you that one time and you were deadlifting pretty good numbers, so I think you're building the strength for sure.
1: Hey, I hit 95 kilos a couple of weeks ago. I was pretty happy with that.
0: Absolutely, that's awesome. Um, for all of us Americans, what is what is that in pounds? You know, off the top of your head,
1: over 200 pounds. So 220 ish.
0: Very good, I think very good.
1: I'd have to do the math, but I think it's two hundred and twenty-five ish.
0: That's impressive. That's very impressive. My um, goal is
1: to hit the five hundred club by the end of by the end of this year. <laughs> hey, you,
0: you've got. It. I've got full faith in you. Full faith in you. Um, real quick, what what would you say? Because I'm interested from a hormonal perspective. Because, uh, like, with my clients, my female clients. That's kind of a tricky you know, spot because there's a lot of emotions involved you know, when you're going through your cycle and you're trying to you know, improve your composition. You see the weight go up a little bit. You feel hungrier. Uh, there's mm-hmm. just a lot of implications there. So what, what can people do, uh, proactively speaking, to kind of dampen the, the negative side effects of that time period and just kind of stay on track for the long game?
1: Well, there is absolutely no question. Hunger pre-period is a thing. It really is. And, and I mean, I, I, I experience it myself, but what I can tell you individually, and I I think this is important because, you know, we're all pretty big keto advocates, but I do think that, that this needs to be individualized, individualized to whether or not you're a woman, individualized to your age, individualized to what your goals are, therapeutic, nutritional, or, you know, or physical. And so I would say, if I can generalize and extrapolate from my own experience, mega fat in the week before because it really does help with the hunger, with the cravings, and and dropping down, um, you know, dropping down that that uh, that protein a little bit because it will also help with with maintaining the water weight. And as I said, when I'm on keto, I do not fluctuate with that water weight nearly as much as I did beforehand. I, I still definitely get a little bit of it but nothing compared to to what it was like before I was eating a ketogenic diet. But I would say increasing the fat will help combat the systemic inflammation that is just a fact of life for women who are still cycling.
0: I think it's also a good idea, and I tell this to my female clients, to kind of somewhat hyperhydrate the week before and of uh, to kind of help the body flush out any any fluids it may be holding um, from the inflammation.
1: That's a great idea, and I have to admit, I suck at my water intake. I really, I could do so much better in that department. So I will try that. Yeah, <laughs> that I think I you think you should you should
0: try that for sure. Because, like, I mean, the body the body with regard to water, if it's going to if you if you don't drink enough water, uh, your body's going to respond by thinking that there's a shortage of it, and it's going to retain more fluids you know, to, to get to that short supply. But if you're mm-hmm. hyper hydrating, so to speak, and giving it an abundance of water, then it's going to, you know, do the reverse of that and flush out your system more efficiently because it knows that it's, that there's plenty of, of water available.
1: That's, that's an awesome idea. I will do that. And what do you tell your female clients um, around electrolyte usage? Do you, does it change at that time of the month or just keep doing what you're regularly doing?
0: It's different for everybody. Everybody's like equilibrium point with electrolytes is different. But generally speaking, if you're going to be increasing your water intake, which I do recommend, I also, you know, subsequently recommend slightly increasing your sodium and potassium to kind of, you know, reach that equilibrium point.
1: Mm-hmm. I will definitely give that a try.
0: And I'll, I'll try, I'll try uh, uh, the, the increased fats. So, so do you increase total calories or do you just kind of swap out the ratios between fat and protein?
1: Uh, I swap out the ratios, but I do not worry about calories. Um, I don't worry about calories anymore because the vast majority of the time I'm actually under calories. And so I'm, I'm trying to pay a little bit more attention now to doing that because I don't want to be chronically under calories Mm -hmm. and it's not changing my weight at all. And I don't want to lose muscle mass, you know, knowing that I'm at least 300 calories below what I should be. And I also just try not to get too hung up on that anyway because, I mean, most people do not log as well as I do. And I log I log pretty well, but I'm sure that I make mistakes. And I'm sure that, the, you know, the calorie counts that I'm putting in there are not going to be 100% accurate. So I try and take that with a bit of a grain of salt. But in terms of, you know, big, big uh, refeeds, if I'm really, really hungry in the week before I have, you know, I'm cycling, then I'm absolutely going to, you know, enjoy those extra calories, but I'll enjoy them with fat. I won't. I won't. Uh, I won't add any more protein. And I'm probably. I like, got be interested in your take on this, but I find that um, therapeutically, in order for me to stay in a really good therapeutic range, I really can't take in more than about fifty to seventy grams of protein a day. And I'm I'm a hundred and eighty pounds. And, and uh, you know, I have a fair bit of muscle on me. Uh, I'm probably around, I don't know, 35% body fat. I'd like to be 25, but that'll never happen again in my lifetime.
0: Hey, don't, you know, don't but, say never.
1: <laughs> I don't know about that. I'm, 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 I'm one of those women who have a born-to-breed body. And so, and I like it. I'm not saying that I, I love being curvy, so I don't ever want to be skinny. That'll be okay. But I would <laughs> love to know, you know, um, your thoughts on that. Because a lot of people... You know, are constantly talking about you need more protein, you need more protein. But in order to stay in a therapeutic keto range for me, in order for my numbers to actually be in a place where I feel safe and where my head feels good, I cannot push it much beyond that. I'll have the occasional 120 gram day, but it certainly isn't every day.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's the you know the 50 to 70 window that you said is totally fine based off of your stats. I mean, like to give you some perspective, when I competed. I was all the way down to 65 grams of protein and, you know, I was three and a half percent body fat. So I was, you know, incredibly low for a typical bodybuilder. So I think, I mean, with ketogenic diet, like fat is incredibly muscle sparing. So you're not going to have to worry about burning through your muscle tissue, especially if you're getting enough calories and fat. uh, So there's no concern there. And I mean, with with your age and your training and and all other factors, you know, you can totally build muscle at the 70, 70 grams you're taking in. So... I think uh, if that's if that's optimal for for you know your uh epilepsy and everything I think you should keep doing that
1: 100%. Awesome. Well, I think you know that's that's kind of the key for me is knowing um knowing what you need therapeutically and for those people who are out there who are you know really thinking about keto from a therapeutic perspective as opposed to a purely nutritional or or you know physical goals uh perspective. It's really important to find your own therapeutic range and different people are going to be successful at a different range. So don't get disheartened if you get your ketones up in the two range and you're still having seizures. You know, you might need to be at four. Whereas I am really comfortable as long as I'm over one. Anything over one and, and I'm golden. When I'm under one, I feel that I'm not that I'm not doing well. And and everybody's going to find a, a different happy place. And there, you know, there are ways to tweak your diet to make sure that that works. And one thing I'll just throw in there, because I've, I've heard it again and again from the people that I interview, um, if you have been on anti-epileptic medication for a number of years, it is very conceivable that you have food sensitivities to the foods that are core to our keto lifestyle, like avocados and coconut, Mm-hmm. So if you're not being successful after being on keto for a month or two, you may want to consider really, you know, dropping a lot of those um, those foods that can be highly allergenic and see if maybe that will, you know, that will make a difference in your, you know, in your therapeutic use of the diet.
0: 100% agree with you on that one. I just had a, a Tracy Gluhach on. She was talking about, you know, food sensitivities and I, I didn't even know, that those existed to the point they did. I, I want to get a, a food sensitivity test done on myself so I can kind of see where my body lies. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I'm, I'm really glad that you brought up the point. You know, with like therapeutic ketosis versus nutritional, because you're absolutely right in thinking. You know, a lot of people out there, there's like there's this uh, conception going around now where, you know, if you if you're overweight, you need to lose fats, then you need to not intake as much fat. Which I totally understand that argument, and for some people, that's a hundred percent correct. But if you go straight into that lower fat uh, bracket, you're not going to know how your body responds to the higher fat ratio, which is going to impact all the therapeutic uh, variables in it, like inflammation. You won't know mm-hmm. how that feels if you go straight into the 50% fat bracket.
1: Absolutely, and I think you know one of the things that we really fight fight against all the time, and and I know you're a big believer in this too, but it's this massive generalization that if you do this, then this will happen. So, you know, the whole calories in, calories out, there, there's so many people who get on the soapbox and say, you're doing it wrong. And as somebody who struggled with weight tremendously, you know, when I was 23, I was 260 pounds, and I did everything, quote unquote, right. I exercised, I ate a Weight Watchers diet, I calorie restricted, and I couldn't lose a damn thing. And it was, it was hormonal, enormously hormonal. I had significant hormonal damage that I didn't even know about. But it was only when I started keto, and I wasn't calorie restricting at all. And I was just eating enormous amounts of fat that it fell off me. But you know what, it didn't fall off me in the way that it does fall off some people on keto. Some people lose 100 pounds in a year, no problem. I didn't, I lost about 60 pounds in my first year. And the, the balance of my 90 pounds in the second year. So it took a little longer. And that was also because, you know, I, I have this, um, this lipedema, which is, which is not, not as widely recognized out there, um, as maybe it should be, but it's extremely stubborn fat to move. Um, and, and it's, it's, you know, it's an unhealthy fat to have. And it's uh, an, an unhealthy, not necessarily from a cardiovascular disease risk, but it's just, it's really difficult to mobilize it off your body. It's the very last thing to go, and and that's you know that's why keto really worked for me. And even though I've been doing it for three years and I'm I'm really comfortable at the weight I'm at now, I would love to be, as I said, another 10, 15 pounds lighter. Would not be a problem for me, but it's all got to come from my thighs because there's nowhere else for it to come from. <laughs> Everywhere else in my body is already mobilized.
0: Yeah, yeah. So so what? Uh, like we talked about it a little bit before we started recording, but. But what exactly is uh, lipidemia? Because I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that have it, maybe not even realizing they have it. There's several people out there that don't even know what it is. Uh, I didn't know what it was. Um, So I'd love to hear about, you know, just kind of going into detail about uh, the science behind lipidemia and kind of what it is, how it's impacted, and how it even starts to begin with.
1: Well, I would love to be the person to tell you all about that but I'm not the best person to do that. So I will put you in touch with somebody who's really, really good at that. I can give you an overview and tell you how it impacts me. But uh, there are people out there who are really, you know, specialists on this. And it would be great if you interviewed them, because I'm pretty sure that there are listeners out there who would really, really benefit. So I'll make sure I pass those names on to you and and you can, you know, you can get them on the show. But just a, a general overview lipidemia is a very specific um pattern of how fat is is put onto your body so for for women if you if anyone who just googles lipidemia will say oh my god i know someone who looks like that so my friends at work call me a mermaid because it's all on my hips and my butt for people who have very serious lipidemia it actually looks like they have sleeves of fat on their legs and it is disproportionately um on the bottom half of their body so a woman can be like a size four on you know from their waist up and you know a size 20 from their waist down so uh, it's disproportionately you know um, allotted onto the hips and the thighs and and the fat itself is not normal fat cells if you look at it underneath a microscope it, it's abnormal tissue and as a result it's really difficult to mobilize it um, it it's God, there's a lot of lymph is in there as well in between the fat cells and that's why it's often known as lymphedema as well. So not only do you have this, this uh, layer of fat that is deposited on the hips and thighs, but you also have this leaching of lymphatic fluid throughout that tissue that makes it really, really difficult to mobilize. So it's it's very uncomfortable. A lot of people have called it the painful fat disease. So um, a lot of people who have this also have fibromyalgia. And I did have fibromyalgia and I took medication for it. I took painkillers. I took sleeping pills um, because I literally could not lie in one position for more than two hours at a time, often not for more than an hour at a time. And I'm very happy to say that keto took that away from me. So I think the anti-inflammatory effect of being on this diet really helped my fibromyalgia, it also really helped my lipodema. So as I lost fat, I did lose some from my thighs. Um, I mean, I, I'd like to say that I, you know, I don't lose a lot from there, but I've lost 20 inches off my hips. So I would say some of it's come off there. Yeah. But it's the last thing to come off for sure. And the pain largely has gone away. So I, I can, I can exercise now. I can foam roll now. I could never I dreamt of getting onto a foam roller. Um, you know, bef- before I had started a ketogenic diet. No way could I have ever done that. So the pain that comes with this kind of, you know, um, this kind of disorder is is really debilitating. It's really hard for people to, to move and feel comfortable uh, just because of the the buildup of lymph as well as the buildup of fat.
0: And, and how, like, let, let's talk a little bit about fibromyalgia because there's probably some people that don't even know what that is. They know somebody that has it, but they don't know the implications behind it. So... How would you describe uh, fibromyalgia and kind of how it affects you? Well, um how it did when, affect you, rather?
1: Yeah. Well, when I first um, I first realized I had fibromyalgia, probably I'd say twenty twenty years ago, fifteen twenty years ago. Um, but back in the day, people weren't even they didn't really have a word for it. Um, sometimes they would call it myofascial pain. Uh, Sometimes they would call it something's wrong with your head. You know, a lot of a lot of women experience this and we're basically just told you need to see a psychiatrist and not a physician because they they put it down to, um, you know, they just they didn't give it the credibility that it it needed. But, um, you know, fibromyalgia is a distinct clinical syndrome. And and it did deserve its own name, and I'm really happy that um, it got it. And it's a source for a lot of disability for a lot of women. Um, I remember reading a textbook that labeled it the irritable everything syndrome, <laughs> and I kind of thought that was that was funny. But certainly for me, the the big signs that characterized it for me were um, huge pain amplification. So. Any like when the cat jumped on me, I would scream with pain. Uh, I could not have the cat sit on my lap, absolutely not. Um, I had hot spots around my body, on my hips and on my elbows and on my shoulders, where I remember when I went into the clinician to um, be diagnosed the first time, he walked behind me and put his thumbs on these these hot spots just above my my pelvic bone. I was not expecting it. I jumped off the the bed, I screamed, and I broke down in floods of tears. I felt assaulted. I had no idea that he was going to do that, and I, I had no idea it was gonna hurt so much. So for me, like that was that was a horrible day, but at least I was in the office of a physician who believed that fibromyalgia wasn't all this in my head, so that was good. Yeah, Um, but a lot of people experience difficulty sleeping so that's a thing because there's so much pain you can't lie in any position for any length of time so you're up all night long uh, which can lead to chronic fatigue um, exercise intolerance so an inability to even walk because there's just so much um, pain and discomfort everywhere in your body uh, cold intolerance, and I still have that to this day. If if I'm really, really cold, um, I just stop being able to function.
0: You should probably move out of Canada. <laughs>
1: you know what? I'm heading to Cuba next week, and it's going to be
0: great. <laughs> Wise move.
1: <laughs> it is, but I mean, my husband, he's an amazing guy, and as I said, we've had this cold snap, so every night before I get into bed, he turns the heating pad on, he puts rice bags, packs in my bed, so that when I climb in, it's all nice and cozy, and, uh, you know, I have ways of of managing that now, but I think the the really the big thing that typifies fibromyalgia pain is this myofascial pain, this pain, um, this this hypersensitivity to pain, and and for some people it can be mild and it can just be the hot spots that bother them, and for other people, sitting for you know ten minutes is unbearable because it's just too much pain, and so people who have this disorder tend to be put on anti-inflammatories first, so heavy duty. You know, um, naproxen, for example, which has horrible um, effects on your gut, those kinds, and liver, for that matter. uh, Those kinds of drugs are prescribed very frequently. And then sleeping pills and antidepressants. And I remember they put me on um, a drug called amitriptyline, which is a low-dose antidepressant. And and the side effect were the worst nightmares you can imagine. So (laughs) here they're giving me this drug to try and help me sleep. And I'm having the worst nightmares of my life. So that did not last long. I stopped taking that right away.
0: Yeah, that's crazy.
1: Yeah, so you know, if you can if you can change your diet and have all of a sudden your whole system's inflammation be reduced, then it's something I would encourage anyone who is currently suffering from this disorder to absolutely give a try.
0: So is it the uh, so you noticed a, a decrease in the fibromyalgia symptoms? in combination with lipidemia symptoms, pretty much as soon as you got on, you know, a therapeutic ketogenic diet because of the anti-inflammatory effects, right?
1: Absolutely. yep. Yeah. And I, I, you know, one of the things when, when I'm interviewing people and, and doing poster presentations, I ask, how many times did you see a doctor and how many medications were you on in the year before you started keto? And how many times did you see a doctor and how many medications were you on in the year after you started keto? And the numbers are shocking. And I, I am one of them. You know, I was on probably fifteen hundred dollars a month worth of medication, which, because I'm Canadian, thankfully uh, was covered. But I was on fifteen hundred dollars a month worth of medication before I started keto, and I have not had to take a prescription drug for anything since then.
0: That's awesome. Truly, freaking like a miracle.
1: It is, but you kind of, you kind of see how maybe. Um, you know, the policymakers in the world don't want this out there because yeah. I was on fifteen hundred dollars a month of drugs and I'm not paying that money anymore. So someone out there is losing money.
0: Absolutely. Well they can keep losing it.
1: <laughs> That's right.
0: So what with regard to the weight loss, so how much have you lost in total since starting keto?
1: Well, I lost ninety pounds on the scale, but I have gone from 59% body fat to about, I'm hoping my next DEXA scan will be 35% body fat.
0: And that entire time, you were pretty much at a therapeutic level uh, on the macronutrient profile, so you were, generally speaking, above 80% fat, right?
1: Yes. I would say uh, definitely more in the first couple of years. As I said, I've been eating a few more salads um, lately. But uh, it's never below seventy-five percent, and and usually it's in the eighty to ninety percent.
0: Which we we touched on earlier before, but I I really just want to drive home the fact that again, you know, there's no one cookie cutter plan for anybody on the ketogenic diet or any diet for that matter. But if if somebody can lose, you know, perfect example being you can lose that much body fat percentage, build that much muscle while having a higher fat ratio and consuming a lot of dietary fat it's naive to assume that you have to drop your dietary fat to burn your body stored fat.
1: Yes, and I think, again, that comes down to individuals. And I think that for women in general, from the women I have spoken to, they tend to do better with much higher fat and actually somewhat higher calories. So eating at their quote-unquote maintenance levels, they will still lose weight if their fat is high enough. I think for many women, they have chronically underfed for years trying to lose weight, and that has messed with the, you know, with with their endocrine system. So I, I think it's really got to be individualized. And if one thing doesn't work, then tweak it a little. Um, but you know, the the other interesting thing, and I'll throw that out there because this is this is such big news, and so many people are really going after, you know, going after keto. It's really important to recognize that. It is not going to be for everyone. There will be a few people who do not respond well to this way of eating from a, a blood work panel perspective and also from a generally feeling good perspective. So I think it's important to respect that everybody is an individual. And while I think the vast majority of the planet could you know, definitely stand to cut back on the carbs and boost the healthy fat, there are going to be a few people who need to tweak it even more in order to stay healthy, and they may not be able to stay in a ketogenic range for long periods of time and still remain healthy. For them, they may do better cycling in and out of a ketogenic diet, like doing keto for a couple of months a year or fasting for a week two or three times a year, you know, or, or those kinds of um, approaches in order to maximize their health. Totally I don't agree. think it's uh, you know it's not a one uh, a one size fits all.
0: Very much agree. Yeah, there's there's no there's no blanket statement to the right way to eat food. I mean, there's so many different people with so many different lifestyles, so many different conditions. There, there's no way to say that this one diet or method of eating is is right for everyone.
1: Mm-hmm. But it's really interesting to see how, when so many people have been saying. This diet is actually the right way to eat if you're trying to cut for a competition, for example, (laughs) you know, for the longest time, that was the mantra and you have gone, you know, you have done amazing work to show that guess what, it's not the only way and you can actually, for you especially, you can have a much better outcome than you even had when you were doing what the dogma suggested is the only way to actually get prepped for a competition.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think uh, <laughs> I'm kind of like contrary to popular belief. I uh, I generally look at what the, the masses are doing and do the exact opposite just to uh, <laughs> prove a point or or learn from it nonetheless. And um, that was definitely a situation in which I did the exact opposite and saw better results than I had previously following the dogma. So I'm glad <laughs> that I did that.
1: They, that's wonderful. And, and I think that that's really important to have leaders out there in the community who are willing to rock the boat a little and and certainly, I rocked the boat a little with my physicians, and I was lucky that I had physicians who were supportive. But there are a lot of people out there who want to try this therapeutically, who might not exactly be getting warm and fuzzy hugs from their, you know, from their uh, clinical team. And to them, I would say, take, take in the literature, you know, find a keto advocate who can support you. And certainly anyone goes to my website, they're going to get links to, to uh, research and papers that they can print and take into their physicians to, you know, to have the same language that these physicians are used to hearing actually, you know, actually handed to them is helpful. And most of the time, if you approach it in a, in a polite and friendly way, maybe that's my Canadianism coming out there, but most of the time, you know, if, if you approach it in a polite way, physicians want to learn. Most people aren't going to shut you down too hard. But uh, I think it's it's really important to explore this if you have a condition that keto can help. And certainly there are a lot of conditions that keto seems to be able to uh, contribute toward overall health significantly.
0: I agree. It, it's sad to me that a lot of people... Uh, and And not to you know bash the the medical field by any means, because they're I mean, they're great people doing great work as well. but they're just um, you know, as a whole, keto hasn't become mainstream in the medical community yet, so that's not really seen as an option. Um so people often take their physician's first word of don't do keto, uh, you know to heart and and not ever explore that as an option. But you know at the end of the day, you're in charge of your own body, you're in charge of your own health. and you know, worst case scenario, it's doubtful that one month of doing keto is going to cause much damage, but after one month, you'll hopefully have an idea as to whether or not that could be an option for you. So I, I would encourage anybody to at least try it, experiment it, put their own health in their own hands and uh, see how their body responds to it.
1: 100%. I 100% agree with you. And I think that, you know, um, part of my degree actually was, was looking at medical anthropology and, and the way um, medical students are trained and for for decades, for, for hundreds of years, in fact, your doctor was the person you listened to and you did not ever question that person. And these days, physicians have hundreds of clients. They do not have the time to spend 16 hours a day researching your specific issues, but you do. And if you go out there and you look into you know, alternatives that might support your health goals, support your therapeutic, you know, your therapeutic goals. And you can take those to your physician and work with that person in a collaborative way to, you know, to explore that. That's brilliant. And and luckily in 2018, that type of, of um, medical approach is becoming more and more patient-centered and family-centered and physicians are really thinking of themselves as collaborators, not necessarily as the expert in the room. I like to consider them as the decoder in the room. And when I go to my doctor and say, this is what I think it is, what do you think? I look forward to her her input because she may have an angle that I haven't researched or I haven't found. And and I'm I'm really excited to hear what she has to say because I know that she... She gives me the time of day and that she is going to take the research that I have done and the um you know the the information that I come into that office with, and she's going to take me seriously.
0: yeah, and that's that's huge. you know, like people um, like with with the the vast array of information out there and like the accessibility of it all, I mean people can pull up their cell phone and look at any you know PubMed publication, they can look at any research article out there. Like there's no excuse for people not to take more initiative into the matters that they want to learn more about. I mean, it's it's just there and it's available to them. So I've always kind of lived by the philosophy of, you know, nobody is going to care as much about my well-being as, as me, so it's 100% fully my responsibility to do what's best for my body. Um, and then I can go to people that are more knowledgeable in a specific topic and learn from them and, and use that as a tool, but it's not their responsibility. You know, it's not the doctor's mm-hmm. the physician's responsibility. It's my responsibility. They're just there to help.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, I would also encourage people to keep their own records. So whatever test you have done ever, whether it's blood work or a mammogram or, you know, a CT scan, whatever you have done, get a copy of it and keep it in your own files, because that can be incredibly powerful if you have two or three years worth of data sitting in front of you you know, you can go back and say, do you remember I was actually diagnosed with this a few years ago? And, and, and I've done that. I, I actually got a recent ultrasound back that told me I had a really healthy gallbladder. And I said, wow, that's cool, considering I had it taken out 15 years ago. <laughs> so it wasn't even my ultrasound. And I brought this up to the doctor. But, you know, if, if I hadn't looked at the ultrasound result myself, I never would have caught that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think it's really, you know, it's something that, that people don't even think that they have the right to do. And I think it's important to empower the public to know that it's your blood work. It's your scan, You can absolutely have a copy.
0: 100% agree. Um, have you have you ever heard of a, the Heads Up Health software?
1: I have. I have heard of it. I, I, I haven't played around with it myself, uh, but I have. I've heard of it, and I don't know whether it works in conjunction with... How we do things in Canada, or it's mainly based in the U.S.
0: Uh, well, to my knowledge, I mean, I think it's I think it's global. Uh, I was talking to the founder of its names, uh, Dave Krasinski. He's a super cool dude. But uh, in the states, at least, it you can sync up um, like your Quest diagnostics or your medical uh, lab results, so that it automatically syncs up and pulls the API data from it. So I basically have like a, a record of all of my past blood tests now. Um, it, it you can plug in your macros, your ketone levels, your blood sugar levels. You can just track everything wow. over time. So it's it's a really cool way to, you know, have all that data compiled.
1: I would love. To, I will look into that and see whether or not I can link it to um, the labs here in Canada.
0: Yeah, and if if they if you can't link it, they have like this concierge service thing where you can just send in your paperwork, your your documentation, and they'll input it all manually for you. Um, if you don't want to do it yourself, which is kind of cool. But wow. it's one of the few things that like I, I don't promote a lot of, you know, softwares or supplements <sharp> like <inhale> that like I I pretty much just I just don't do that, but he's doing some pretty cool stuff and any anything that allows people to take matters into their own hands and kind of like fend for themselves more, I'm I'm 100% supportive of.
1: That sounds wonderful. I will definitely look into it.
0: Yeah, check that out for sure. Uh on a side note, you mentioned that you had your gallbladder removed. Is that has that affected um, you know, you doing the ketogenic diet very much? Because I've had, you know, clients that have had the same thing, same procedure done, taking their gallbladder out. So I did some reading on it and, you know, you're producing less bile to break down the fat. So have you had to change the way you eat at all with that?
1: You know what? I've been really lucky. I've heard that from other people too, that they've had some difficulty or certain fats they have, or certain percentages of fats they have harder time with. I have not actually found that to be true. Um, I do occasionally supplement with bile salts, with ox bile salts, mm-hmm. um, but it's really occasional. I mean, I have them downstairs on my counter and I forget to take them nearly every day. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, so it's, I, not, critical I, it's then. not like I'm going, wow, this, I'm in pain or I'm suffering and I really need to take this thing. Um, I, I don't do that. I just take them because I read that I probably should be taking them because I don't have a gallbladder. Um, but I'm not, I'm, I'm actually not bothered by it at all and and i wonder why that is i wonder why it doesn't bother me and it does bother others i don't know
0: it's interesting cuz i mean i could see how you know if somebody was keto adapted then they had their gallbladder removed and their body at that point was already efficient at using and breaking down the fats as a fuel source so i could see it being less of an issue then but if you had her removed 15 years ago and had only been on the keto diet for 3 years that wouldn't apply to you
1: mhm yeah
0: huh very interesting very interesting well, Julian, we've been on here for an hour. I can keep talking to you all day long, but uh, we'll have to do a follow up for sure because I, I'm curious to hear about everything else you get going on. Um, but but what I mean, what where can people go to find out more about you and what what you're doing in the space?
1: Absolutely. Well, people can come and visit my very fledgling website, which I am working to uh, populate a bit more over the next couple of months. Uh, it is called ketoalldayeveryday.com. dot com. And really what I'm trying to do there is um, highlight people, individuals in particular, who are using ketogenic diets therapeutically and and make it a space where they can talk about the success that they've had. Because for a lot of folks out there, there isn't a lot in the literature. There are a few case studies here and there. But I have this dream of, of my website being like a giant poster hall where all of these individual n of 1 case studies can come together and all of a sudden there are going to be you know 2000 people who've reversed their type 2 diabetes and 2000 people who have had a huge seizure reduction and people who are talking about their parkinsons and their pcos and who've had babies when they were infertile for 5 years and i've i've had a chance to talk and interview so many amazing people and i have some of the interviews are on are on the site so you can actually read them but over the next couple of months, I'm going to convert some of those to audio files so people can listen to them as well. And I'm going to be putting more poster presentations on. And the other little thing that I'm just going to throw a plug in there for because I'm, I'm really passionate about this is that um, I have a fundraiser on that website right now where I am trying to get the keto community to rally together and raise money for a human trial looking at the effects of a ketogenic diet on McArdle's disease. And even though McArdle's disease is a really rare disease, and and it's a glycogen storage disease that people can look up, we won't spend too much time talking about it today. The reason I'm so passionate about it is that it's really sexy. And if people get behind this, and if, if everyone out there doing keto sends the money they would spend at Starbucks this week to this fundraiser, we can get this launched. We've got the researchers ready, the guys at ASPE are are, are willing to, to help us out and, and to fly the people that have this disease to Tampa to get the testing that they need to run this human trial. We can do it in a year. And I know for a fact that the outcomes are going to be amazing, uh, because I've spoken to individuals who use keto over what the recommended dietary um, uh, guidelines are, and have profound impacts on their health. And there's a story on my website that people can read um, about about what all of this is about. But the bottom line is that if we mobilize as a community and fund one research trial, even if it has nothing to do with us individually, that is going to get keto in the spotlight where it needs to be. And more funding will become available for more human trials on more therapeutic causes. So if I can say one thing to all your listeners, it would be go to the website, donate 10 bucks and then tell 10 of your friends to donate 10 bucks. It's $60,000 that we need. So far, I think I've raised about 2000. And so we've got a long ways to go, but I'm really confident that if we just keep spreading the word and keep getting it out there, you know, that the keto community will rally. And I mean, we all spend 10 bucks at Starbucks every week. So, you know, what's that? To be able to say that you contributed to something really, really important. So if you're doing keto, If keto is important to you, then support this fundraiser so that it can really, genuinely make a huge difference in the lives of people who desperately need it for their life.
0: Amen to that. Like I could just feel your like genuine passion flowing through the microphone here. Like that gets me, (laughs) that gets me fired up because I, I, see, even since when I first met you, you know, like I could just tell you genuinely care about other people and like you've had so much success with it, you just want to spread that to others. And the, the, the community as a whole is like that, I think, uh, in large part, which is just, it's, it's very humbling to see. It's very it's very cool to see. Um, so I, I'm very proud and happy for you for what you're doing right now. You're making waves right now.
1: Thanks, Rob. Well, you're doing the same thing. And and that's why, you know, we talk about the importance of getting people to advocate for themselves. But people like you and me, we advocate for others too. And And I want to be that person who can help. Help the the community who might not be able to do all of the research that we can do, who might not have the resources to really be able to understand the science and the biochemistry behind what's happening. I want to help those people achieve the same successes that you and I have achieved.
0: Absolutely. Well, I'll put I'll put the link to all of those sites in the description. And anybody that's got you know ten bucks to spare at Starbucks, I highly recommend putting it towards that. I'll, I'll be I'll be foregoing my Americana with heavy cream and butter this week. <laughs> and putting it towards that
1: awesome that's great rob thanks so much it was great talking to you today
0: likewise julian until next time you have a great one